Yeah, I think sometimes we have this sense that we are obligated to be informed and obligated to stay up on everything that's happening. And that's really impossible now in, in our media environment. You know, we're finite human beings. And so we have to put limits in place, our artificial limits at this point, to engage with a bit more thoughtfulness and, uh, in, in, you know, in doses that are appropriate to what we can handle and responsibly engage with. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Dr. Ken Keefley. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Quinn. Today in our Christ and Culture conversation, we're going to talk with Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro about how to read the news as a Christian. And then after that, we'll have a guest segment to discuss how technology is changing us. But first, let's begin with our segment in the news. September the 22nd marked the first day of fall where candy corn, pumpkins, and all such things are filling the stores. Dr. Keitha, this is my favorite time of the year, by the way. I tell my students and my church, from pumpkins to Christmas trees, best time of the year without question. I may extend it a little bit, New Year's, all the way up to Super Bowl. All the way up to Super Bowl, that's right. (laughs) Coffee companies have released a new fall beverage, of course, at this time of year, the pumpkin spice latte. Temperatures dropping, days are getting shorter, colors are changing, leaves are falling, all kinds of fun things going on. My question, Dr. Keithley, is Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. What can seasons like fall teach us about our good God? Uh, Psalm 19 does indeed say that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork or his craftsmanship. I love how the psalmist begins those first six verses talking about what creation does. Penny and I spent the weekend at a retreat at a camp in the mountains, and indeed, it was beautiful. As we stepped out that night after the session, we stepped out in the night sky. The air was clear. You could see the stars. And she said, you know, is that is that a star? Is that a planet? I have one of those apps where you can just, yeah. you know, point it in that direction. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, that's Jupiter. And right to the right of it, Saturn. It was just gorgeous. So as the psalmist says, I think that there's three A's that creation does. First, the sense of awe. I think believers and unbelievers both find themselves overwhelmed with this sense that the world is an awesome place. This universe is awesome. Uh, But not only that, appreciation, because, you know, you you can have something that's awesome that you don't really like. I mean, a nuclear bomb is is awesome. Who wants one? Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not just that it is awe-inspiring, but we also have this sense it's a beautiful place. Uh, It's aesthetically gorgeous. And so uh, we have an appreciation. And so the third A is awareness, Mm -hmm. that it makes us keenly aware of God. And that's what the psalmist says, that when one sees these things, it reminds us so very much that there is a creator who's made all things. Interestingly enough, in Psalm 19, the first six verses talks about how the universe shows us that there is a God but it's God's special revelation that lets us know who this God is. Maybe an, another A for this time of the year being that of autumn, yeah. which fills in with those. And I've got to ask you, Dr. Keithley, for pumpkin spice lattes, which A does it fit into? 
I'm trying to think. It may be the A of Not antinomianism. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say awful. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would that one would also work I'd, too. I'd put it I, in the awesome. I love pumpkin pie. I just don't want it in my coffee. I understand. Thousands of voices are fighting for our attention every single day. I know I don't have to tell all of you guys that, including everything from cat videos on YouTube to clickbait to cable news and cultural commentary. The question then is, how might Christians engage media? Is there a distinctly Christian way to consume the news, Dr. Keithley? Well, there's a new book that seeks to address this question. It's called Reading the Times, a Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. Today, we're delighted to be joined by the book's author, Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro. Dr. Bilbro is editor-in-chief of Front Porch Republic, and he is also associate professor of English at Grove City College. Dr. Bilbro, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to chat with you today. Dr. Bilbro, we're going to jump in. We've got a, a battery of questions we want to kind of throw at you, and we'll chase a few things down along the way. But to begin with, Let's just start with this. We're bombarded with media now more than ever, especially through smartphones and various types of technology, computers, TVs, even at the gas pumps. As we've all noticed, you can't even pump gas anymore without some kind of an advertisement or a replay of the game or whatever flowing in front of you. How do we cut through the chaos to discern what's really true and what's not true and maybe even to make sense of what some call the fake news phenomenon? Wow, yeah, these are big questions, and uh, I hope you you feel free to weigh in if if my responses are inadequate, which in 20 minutes they surely will be. But you know, one of the things that I think it's helpful for Christians to do in this context is to kind of go back to basics. And one of the authors I recommend or or learn from in this book, although his theology is somewhat dubious, is uh, Henry Thoreau, uh, the 19th century American writer. And he has this adage in uh, Life Without Principle where he says, read not the times, read the eternities. And the idea, you know, that we might need to withdraw from the noise of the moment in order to spend more time soaking in, meditating on the things that, that matter. And, you know, that should be a familiar perspective to Christians, a familiar posture to Christians. Uh, I'm thinking also of things like Psalm 1, right, where the blessed man is this rooted tree whose roots go down into the, the waters of the word. So, you know, the, the first step, I guess, is to, to try to withdraw to some extent and to be anchored in what matters. But that's not a head in the sand, you know, ignoring what's going on around us posture, but it is necessary to then have a kind of redemptive perspective on what's happening and to be able to respond with wisdom rather than just participate mindlessly in the noise of the moment. So to clarify on that, you're, you're suggesting kind of a less is more type of approach yeah. rather than being allowing oneself to be constantly sort of head in the news. You're, you're saying it's not a head in the sand, therefore, but more of a maybe less is more so that you can reflect and have more sobriety. Exactly. Yeah, I think sometimes we have this sense that we are obligated to be informed and obligated to stay up on everything that's happening. And that's really impossible now in, in our media environment. You know, we're finite human beings. And so we have to put limits in place, our artificial limits at this point, to engage with a bit more thoughtfulness and uh, in, in, you know, in doses that are appropriate to what we can handle and responsibly engage with. Well, there used to be editors right. that would do the filtering for us when there were only three major television networks. 
are when there was only a couple of newspapers for the city, much of that filtering process was ready-made. Now we are in an environment in which it's not just news is needle in a haystack. We're dealing with an, a stack of needles. Uh, so, so what kind of filtering or limiting processes or practices do you recommend? Yeah, I think you're exactly right to, to state the problem that way. And I think, you know, one of the things I talk about is the need to be part of healthy communities who can help us make sense of all that's going on. So there's a lot of, you know, in, in part justified criticism of a very partisan media landscape. But in some ways, that's kind of a return to the, the older norm before this anomalous period that you're talking about when there was just one or two papers in every city and three stations on TV. And in that kind of partisan organized media landscape, I think it's more important than ever that we find trusted people and communities who we may not always agree with their conclusions, but whose kind of mode of engagement and thinking we respect and, and think, you know, these people are people of wisdom and not just trying to get my clicks or trying to get my attention. And, and then uh, engage in conversation with those people to help us find what's important and kind of shape our affectional responses to the news of the day. So in your book, you make a distinction between Kairos and Kronos. What do those terms mean? And what did you mean when you use them? Yeah, th those should be, those are just Greek terms. So, um, you know, any Christian reading the New Testament in the Greek would know those, but uh, I kind of use them in particular ways and, and basically making a distinction between two different kinds of time. So Kairos time is uh, sort of seasonal or cyclical time, you know, the right moment to plant something, the right moment for a particular action, uh, kind of dramatic time. And Kronos time is what we more commonly think of in terms of the clock, the calendar, sequential horizontal timeline. And, you know, particularly in our media saturated culture, we really live in a Kronos world where what is new is what is important and demands our attention. But for Christians, you know, we, we have to learn how to interpret what's going on now through the drama of God's ongoing interaction with creation which takes place outside of the straight timeline of history. So you have to have some kind of filter, I guess, to make sense of and, and discern this, the meaning of events in the news. And probably the most common filter now is a view of historical progression. Right? How are things moving? Which side of the arc of history are you on? These kinds of things. And I think a Christian imagination should seek to be formed by the drama of God's interaction with the world and then try to fit the events of time into their place within this Christian narrative. Let me follow up on that, Dr. Yeah. Bilbrough. So you, you talk about in your book as well, the, the drama of scripture, for lack of a better phrase, that's the title of a, a great book we'd recommend to our readers yeah. as well. But that being said, help just sort of land the plane a little bit on that for our, our listeners. How does the, the great storyline of scripture, how does it really touch and connect with the daily news cycle? And how does it help us to interpret that news cycle more Christianly and carefully? Just to give one simple example, it might radically reshape what we see as significant. So oftentimes, some celebrity tweeted something, or some politician had a very poorly worded statement, right? And that becomes like the thing that uh, everyone is talking about for, well, I was going to say the week, but maybe the day. And yet oftentimes, these things really are not that important. The work of a local charity or the work of, of a faithful you know, member of the community, which is much more significant in the grand scheme of things, is overlooked. So I think, for instance, the kind of reporting that World Magazine does with their Hope Awards, where they 
every summer they go and do these in-depth reporting on local Christian nonprofits who are doing, you know, redemptive work in their communities is, is great. And it's not the kind of headline grabbing, I got to click on this right now. And yet it's probably much more important than a lot of the things that, that are above the fold, as it were. So part of this is kind of reshaping the standards for what's significant or what's newsworthy and trying to attend to these things that are going to have lasting import. It's really helpful because what I hear you saying in that is the one way that it kind of reshapes and reorders our priorities is those things that seem to connect most closely with a proper love for God and love for neighbor. All of a sudden, those things become more important than what Kim Kardashian said last night or whatever the case is. Right. 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 You also mentioned world news. So I noticed, uh, you know, not too long ago, world also started their own daily podcast, which is a, it's kind of intended to be a Christian NPR. It's not a live broadcast, but they, they put it out every week or every day uh, during the week. Is, is that the kind of thing that perhaps is helpful for Christians to evaluate alongside secular media? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I, I think it's healthy for Christians to also uh, learn from non-Christian journalists. You know, I've certainly benefited from the work of people whose theology I don't share. But yeah, I think world is trying to do really important work. And they are definitely, I think, a model of how to engage with what's going on in the day's news, but to do so from uh, a perspective that's more rooted in the Christian narrative. You said something very important just then. You said that you can listen to people that you don't particularly agree with, and yet you are able to profit from hearing them. So there's a process by which you, you are evaluating what they're saying. How are you able to um, eat the fish and spit out the bones? I mean, I think part of this comes back to, you know, what kind of community are we rooted in? And uh, I think a lot of the dysfunction that we see in social media and in the broader media ecosystem comes from people engaging and looking for community there who don't really belong anywhere else. And so we're looking for, uh, I want to know the people who like these stories or who have this perspective, and I'm going to kind of seek out my community in the public sphere. But, you know, online community might be an okay supplement, but it's not a very rich, formative, healthy environment to, to have your identity shaped. And so I think as Christians, a good place to start would be the local church. Uh, but, but also, you know, as a, as a kind of localist, I'm going to say our local communities outside the church as well. And if we can understand the significance and the purpose of our lives in those local contexts, then I think it's easier for us to engage and listen in on these broader conversations and not think of them as, you know, impinging on my identity or as sort of life or death struggle. I have to reject this person or accept this person and and kind of signal. So I think the work of discernment is much easier when we are rooted in and confident of the communities that we belong to that are ideally, I would say, the church and our neighborhoods. In your book, you make a comment about modern news organizations as lifestyle brands. And I think just even on the, on the surface of it, we can understand that already, because if you're talking to someone sitting next to them on the plane or in a taxi or whatever, and they say, I watch MSNBC every night, you're going to assume certain things about them. Or if they wear Fox News on their sleeve, you're going to assume certain things because it does become sort of lifestyle. You have this uh, sentence in your book, modern news organizations double as lifestyle brands where we get our news signals and it shapes our identity. What exactly do you mean by that? How do we guard against those kinds of things? I think this has been exacerbated by the pandemic as people have not been able to attend church in person, maybe, or only sporadically, or they've not been able to 
know, maybe they can go on Sunday morning, but the Sunday schools and small groups are on hiatus. So there's that absence on the one hand. Uh, and then on the other hand, obviously the pandemic has become very politicized and people have very strong opinions on all kinds of issues related to that. And I think that's exacerbated these problems that have kind of been festering for a while where we might think that we have more in common with the person who consumes the news from yeah, MSNBC or NPR or Fox, rather than the person who, uh, you know, worships the same God. And I think it's that sort of shift in, uh, I guess, a locus of our communal identity from the church, from our city, to this kind of more abstract political identity or cultural identity that is quite devastating. And it, and it leads to people consuming the news and turning to the news for purposes that the news really is not sufficient to serve, right? The news really should not be the place where we get our identity or kind of shape our consumer performance. So I guess as much as possible, we need to recognize these trends, recognize these temptations, and then try to belong better within the church so that we're able to have these conversations and you know, say, this is my brother, this is my family member, even if I happen to disagree with some aspects of you know, their political thinking or their cultural analysis, we're still in the same community. I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking about scenarios in which people are in social media uh, situations in which they agree with each other or in which they disagree with each other. And the ones in which they agree with each other seem to end up being echo chambers. Uh, silos. And uh, that sometimes has the effect of turning things up to 11. And then I've seen almost the exact kind of turning things up to 11 whenever they disagree with each other, where I'm thinking, boy, that escalated in a hurry. What are some good practices in that whenever we're developing a more healthy engagement with media? What would be some steps you would recommend and how perhaps can we lead others to do likewise? I guess to go back to the beginning, I think setting healthy limits is a place to begin. And, and also thinking about, you know, Jimmy Smith talks about kind of counterformative practices, like counter liturgies. So if we recognize these tendencies that, wow, we get all worked up about some kind of an online debate about a news story, uh, what can I do to kind of appropriately tune my emotional responses, right? So that I care about the things that matter uh, and I don't care about the things that, that are less important. So, you know, I, I suggest kind of maybe some paradoxical or surprising things like going for a walk and talking to your neighbors and, and trying to discern what's important for them. Set your screen down for a few minutes or garden or, or do some kind of craft and cultivate the kind of attention and responsiveness to the material world that our screens and, and digital media often distract us from. So if I hear you right, what you're telling me is I shouldn't get so worked up if somebody in Montana disagrees with me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's tough, right? It's tough in our in our media environment to calibrate our emotional responses adequately and rightly. But that's a big part of Christian discipleship, I think. I, I have wondered if we ought not to return to something like what the Senate used to do. You know, there was a time uh, the United States Senate became so volatile that they, they actually had one senator nearly beat another right. to death. And so they instituted an exaggerated hospitality or an exaggerated uh, form of politeness that was performative, yes, but it served a function to remind them that they're always to treat each other with respect. I'm wondering if we ought not to have some type of best practices for exaggerated politeness on social media. I like that. I, I think there is a way, you know, when you're texting with somebody or, or on social media, if you don't want to come across as brusque or mean, you do have to kind of over the top 
say, look, this is a polite disagreement, or I hear you and sort of begin with where you agree. And I think reminding ourselves that these kinds of digital communications are often losing a lot of the facial cues or other embodied cues that would tell somebody this is not a life or death struggle, right? We just happen to have a, a slight disagreement here. So we have to find ways, I guess, yeah, to, to reprioritize politeness and respect and kind of demonstrate that in these discussions. Absolutely. It makes me think kind of back to the beginning, and we, we came back around to it at the end about healthy engagement with media broadly and, and not least social media. It strikes me that some of the most insightful cultural commentators or evaluators or critics even, both in contemporary society and historically, are people who actually don't engage with it a whole lot. It's Sometimes they're those from the monastic tradition or yeah. those who only watch the news for 30 minutes a day and they don't do social media. And sometimes it's that distance from it that gives them that much more clarity into it. And it's just, I think that's a healthy and encouraging reminder for us. Yeah, that maybe there's a sort of proportion between limited engagement and quality of the engagement. Yeah, yeah. We've been listening to Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro. He's editor-in-chief of Front Porch Republic. And the book is Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. Dr. Bilbroth, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It was a delight to, to talk with you today. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Given our conversation with Dr. Bill Bro, it's no surprise to say that technology is changing us, and not always for the better. So as we wrap up today's episode, pastor and author Jeff Mingi will share a narrative to cause us to ask, does your digital activity serve you, or does it govern you? I would like to invite you to observe a day in the life of the stereotypical digital worshiper. At a precise and predetermined time, our subject is hijacked from rest with the repeated and increasingly loudening buzzes from her phone, carefully positioned within reach from her bed. She stretches out her arm from under the cover and silences the alarm with a quick swipe of her thumb. She has been digitally aroused, which may take on a whole different meaning later in the day given statistics. A moment later, she stretches the power cord as far as allowed, further than the frayed cable and exposed wires recommend. She has stretched and twisted that cord one too many times. Her eyes adjust to the glowing screen. She is slowly coming to life with the nurturing help of her device. Having silenced the alarm, she checks social media to see what others have considered worth informing the digital world about while she was asleep. Her eyes scan headlines that report increasing global crises, accompanied by the furious comments of her friends, family, and coworkers, quickening her heartbeat before she's even thought about exercise. With another click, she has left her social circle for email and begins to browse through her collected mailbox, sorting between daily real estate updates in her desired neighborhood, a reminder of what she does not have, coupons for local events, fueling her fear of missing out and guiding her financial investments, and work-related updates, stirring anxiety and frustration for the day ahead. The mind that was sound asleep minutes ago is now swimming with a flurry of information. 
As she gets out of bed and prepares for the day, her phone is never far. She uses it to check the weather forecast. She checks her schedule for the day. She responds to text messages and sends some messages out in hopes of making plans for later. Notable events pop up on the screen from time to time and fill the air with chimes of notification, beckoning her back to the phone. As she gets in the car to go to work, she uses the phone to listen to music and to direct her along the most time efficient route with boy band voiced directions that warn her of hazards reported ahead. At work, she is plugged into her computer, yet keeps her phone nearby. In fact, every few minutes, she checks it just to see if she has missed anything. During the morning work routine, she connects via text message with her friend for lunch plans. She makes sure to set an alarm so she won't forget. At lunch, she holds her phone up to the register to pay, trading no niceties with the person behind the counter. While the friends eat, their conversation is driven by who posted what recently, and they both continue to check their phones throughout. At the end of the workday, she heads home and uses her phone to look up the recipe for dinner, as well as to time how long things need to cook. With her phone, she watches TV and plays some games to pass a few hours. Of course, each event is interrupted a few times with a notification that something, either a funny meme from a friend or breaking news of a shooting, requires her attention. As she settles in for the night, she makes sure to plug her phone in so that it can recharge just as she does. They'll both need the energy to do it again tomorrow. Chances are you're more like our digital subject than you'd care to admit. You are listening to this on a digital device, perhaps while multitasking on other digital devices. You are digitally connected. Does your digital activity serve your life as a follower of Jesus, or does it govern it? There's an obvious difference between a servant and a governor. The governor directs and the servant serves. So which role is your digital device playing? Or perhaps it's better to say, which role are your digital devices playing? Do they serve your life as a follower of Jesus, or do they govern it? God in his kindness has placed you on earth at this time with this digital device, or again, these digital devices. Use them for his purposes. Take control. Ask critical questions. Be a digital missionary. Jeff Mingi is a pastor of Catalyst Church in Newport News, Virginia. He serves as a church planning strategist with the SBC of Virginia and is currently pursuing his doctorate of ministry here at Southeastern Seminary. He's the author of Called to Cooperate, a biblical survey and application of teamwork, as well as other books. Jeff, thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, do us a huge favor. Go and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or share the episode with a friend. We look forward to seeing you next time.